It's the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver. It's the final round of the men's halfpipe finals. Americans Scotty Lego and Sean White are the last two snowboarders to compete. Sean White is in the lead, but Scotty Lego has a chance to unseat him from his gold medal spot. We're going to do this at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. Don't worry. Spoil. We'll, 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 I'm going to show this to you later, okay? Scotty Lego has a chance to unseat him from his gold medal spot. Scotty Lego, he drops into the half pipe with a, with a bunch of speed. He goes into that first air, and he just does this huge extension. You'll see it which sets up this massive 1080, which he lands cleanly as he heads into this beautiful double cork. But Scotty lands too far back on his board. He has to put his hand out to arrest his fall, and he sort of skids out in the middle of the half pipe. When Sean White sees Scotty Lego skid out, he knows from the top of the half pipe that he has just won Olympic gold. Right? His high score of 46.8, it's not going to be beaten. And the camera cuts to him, to Sean White and his coaches. And they're hugging each other and they're high-fiving all up there at the top of the half pipe. Now, this detail is crucial. Sean is still at the top of the half pipe, which means he still has to make his way down. But Sean doesn't need to do anything now to win. He's just won. His is the top score, right? There's no more contenders. His gold medal is guaranteed which sets up this really interesting question and this amazing Olympic moment, right? If I'm guaranteed gold, how then should I ride? What should I do? Sean literally asked this question of his coach. I hope you can hear it as we watch it. What should I do? Should I just ride down the middle? And his coach says, no, man, have fun. Freaking send that thing. And he does. You'll see later. Freed from the pressure to perform, Sean White delivers the best performance of his life. And that bears repeating. Freed from the pressure to perform, Sean White delivers the best performance of his entire life. And this might seem counterintuitive at first. You might think, like, won't you compete greater if you're trying to get the gold and not after it? But the logic here is the same logic of a climbing ballet or a net under a trapeze artist. Knowing that you're safe, knowing that you're secure, knowing that you're guaranteed the gold doesn't make you hold back. It frees you up to go all in. You can go super big because you know you're going to go home no matter what with the gold around your neck. And that's exactly what Sean White does. In fact, this last lap, he beats his already like, top score. He sets a new high score after winning gold. When we start Romans 12, we're like Sean White at the top of that half pipe. We have just gotten the news that our gold medal is guaranteed. There is nothing that we can do to lose at this point. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Not at all. Whatever befalls us, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, right? Overwhelming victory is ours in Christ. It's like Sean White. We've, we've got the gold. In view, then, of this mercy, in view of this victory, how should we then live? 
Should we play it safe? Should we hold ourselves back? Should we just ride down the middle of the half pipe? Paul kicks off the second half of his letter essentially saying, no man, right? Freaking send that thing. And so I want to read that for you again. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, and I want you to hear the intensity in that. I urge you, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This, he says, is your true and proper worship. Paul is describing what it means for us to live in light of the gospel. If you recall, this is a letter that comes to us in two halves. That first half, chapters 1 to 8, is really what is the gospel? What, what is the good news about Jesus? And from now, from chapters 12 to 16, Paul's going to lay out what it means to live in light of that gospel. And the first thing that he says to you and to me tonight is the way we live in light of the gospel is with wholehearted devotion to God. Like he is all in for us. He's gone all in for us. And so we can go all in for him too. Like, go all in. He makes this point by using an analogy from the Old Testament sacrificial system. I know that's sort of foreign to you, but I'll try to explain here. In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, God tells his people how they are to worship him, including what sacrifices they were to offer and when. This is before Jesus offers himself as like this once and for all sacrifice on the cross which sort of abolishes the need for any more sacrifices. Okay, in the Old Testament, before that, like God says, hey, here's how you can worship me. Here's what to sacrifice and when. And the first sacrifice that is mentioned is what's called a burnt offering or a whole burnt offering. This is the sacrifice that Paul has in mind here. In the Old Testament, there were two uses for this kind of a sacrifice. One was for making atonement for sin. The second was for expressing your wholehearted devotion to God, a way of saying thanks, a way of giving praise. Okay, we know from Romans chapters 1 to 8, as well as other parts of the scripture, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who offered up his whole self to pay for all of our sins, like yours and mine and the world's. Now, Paul says, offer yourselves to him, not as an atonement for sin, right, because Jesus did that once and for all, But he says, offer up your whole selves, right, as like a living sacrifice, as a way of showing wholehearted devotion to the one who is wholly devoted to you. Like in view of God's mercy, in view of all the good that he's done for you, how committed he is to you, the fact that he's all in for you, go all in for him as well. Like don't hold anything back. Give your whole self, right, your whole person to him, not just your brain, but your body, not just that invisible part of you, but that physical, tangible part of you too, right? Your whole person. He says, this is your true and proper worship. And that phrase that gets translated in our English translation here, like true and proper, it's just this one Greek word, logikon, which literally means like, this is your logical worship. Like this is the rational thing to do. If God is all in for you, it makes perfect sense for you to be all in for him as well. Like that's the most logical thing. Well, what's the alternative to sort of this whole person, wholehearted devotion to Jesus? I think the answer to that is half-assing it. It's like being half in, half out. 
like giving him a piece of our life here and a piece of our life there, but not being all in. And I think our culture encourages that kind of worship in a number of ways, but I'm just going to cite two tonight. Our culture promotes half-hearted worship by dividing the human person into body and soul and by dividing the world into sacred and secular. And I want to tell you what I mean by that. First, uh, the, the, the culture promotes half-hearted worship by dividing us sort of body and soul. Okay, the Bible teaches us that human beings have a body and soul, but that our bodies and souls are so intricately linked that we can't separate them from one another. I'm not the best science person, but I know enough to be dangerous. I think the best way to explain sort of the relationship between body and soul is this chemistry example of a mixture versus a solution. And a mixture, two substances are brought together, but they aren't fused together to form sort of a new thing. In a solution, they do. Okay? An example of a mixture would be putting a bunch of sand in a cup of water. When you do that, the sand and the water, they are touching, they come into contact with one another, but you can easily remove the sand from the water. That's a mixture. And a solution would be something like adding sugar to water. When you add sugar to water, the sugar dissolves. And what happens is like you don't just have sugar and you don't just have water. You now have this whole new thing. You've got sugar water, right? The Bible says the relationship between our body and soul is like that. That the relationship between body and soul is not like water and sand, but water and sugar. That when body and soul meet, they create this new thing called a human being a human person, right? You, me. You are not just a body. You're not just a soul. You are a fusion, sort of a solution of the two. You are an embodied soul. But what we're seeing in our culture is a resurgence of this Gnostic idea that you have a body, but who you really are is your soul. According to sort of pop thinking, the real you is the invisible, immaterial you that's completely divorced, completely independent of your body. In some ways, your, your body is superfluous to your identity. It's kind of like luggage, right? Uh, your body is this thing that gets you, your person from point A to point B, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter all that much. What's most important is what's on the inside. And the implication of this thinking is that your body and what you do with your body doesn't really matter all that much. What really does matter is your mind, your will, and your feelings. That's what really makes you, you. You understand the difference here? The Bible rejects this kind of dualism, this sort of splitting apart of body and soul. It insists that you are a psychosomatic unity, that what you do with your body affects your soul and what you do with your soul affects your body, that these two things are so intertwined. There are some out there who'll say that you can love God and hear, sort of with your soul, like with your heart, and you can do whatever you want with your body. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. If you love God and hear, it's gonna work itself out Right, bodily. You can't 
separate these two. And I like how Nancy Percy puts it in her book, Love Thy Body. She says, if you really want to know what's going on inside your heart, look at the way that you live. Look at the way you, you work it out, out there. She says, the body is the means by which the invisible is made visible. And I think that's right. I think that's biblical. Paul doesn't want you or I to think that we can worship God sort of just with our minds or our spirits and not involve sort of the use of our body. That we can sort of like love God with our head or our heart, but not really our hands, right? He's like, that's not true worship. That's, that's a false conception, right? God is far more, like God doesn't tell you everything that he tells you and me so that you can ace a theology exam, just so that you would have like right beliefs about him. It's so much more than that. The reason why he tells us who he is and who we are and what he's done for us is not to fill our head with facts, not to even just give us good feelings in our hearts, but he wants us to connect dots, to work out with our whole person, like with, with all of that we are, right? Like the implications of his good news message, to engage our bodies in worship, not just for our own good, but for the good of the world, right? This is worship that's pleasing to God, that makes sense in light of reality, right? It's worship that's whole person, body and soul, head, heart, and hands, all integrated, right? One of the way that the culture sort of guillotines worship is by splitting us up, body and soul, saying like, yeah, you can do whatever you want with that over there. Like, you can do whatever you want with your, your body. Just, just, it's all spiritual. But there's another way that the culture sort of does this too, and it's by dividing the world into sacred and secular. In other words, you want to worship God? That's great. But do so over there in your little special little place in your special little time. Like you can have sacred spaces and you can have sacred time, but when you're done with all of that, come back to the real world. And when you kind of like step into the real world, don't bring your God and your religion with you. Like just leave that at the door. You want to worship God? Great. You have an hour on Wednesday nights in the Interfaith Center. Or you have an hour on Sunday at Main Street Landing or New King or wherever it is you might worship. You want to worship God? Cool. You got 15, 20 minutes with Jesus in your journal and a cup of coffee first thing in the morning. But when you're done with all of that, you can leave him behind because the world is sacred and secular. There's sacred spaces where God belongs and then there's everything else. And when you enter this sort of everything else, Leave Jesus behind because he has no place. He has no allegiance in the classroom or the cafeteria, the library or the lounge, the fishbowl or the frat house, the sorority or the spring break trip, the bedroom or the boardroom, your cell phone or casual conversation or anything in between. Jesus has no bearing there. But Paul's not down with that. And heck, Jesus isn't down with that either. Because as far as he's concerned, there is no sacred secular gap. That's an idea that you all and we all made up. That doesn't really exist. As far as he's concerned, all of it is sacred. All of it is his. He made it. And he's concerned with saving it. 
Uh, one theologian, uh, a guy named Abraham Kuyper, he says it so well. He says, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who's sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Seeing there's not a square inch of your life that Jesus doesn't say, yeah, that's, that, that belongs to me. I have a right to speak into that. I have a right to tell you what to do in those spaces because it's, I made it, I saved it, it's mine, all of it. If Jesus is Lord of all, it means he is Lord all the time and everywhere. I like how Wendell Berry puts it. He says, there's no unsacred spaces. There's only sacred spaces and desecrated spaces. And our job is to begin to sort of see all aspects of life, every moment of our life as holy and to live in light of that reality. I know that there are parts of your life that you don't want to give Jesus access to. I know that there are parts of this campus that you would rather not run into Jesus because that would be awkward, (laughs) right? I know because it's not just that I've been there too. I know that's just true of my own life still. Like I'm not doing this perfectly. You aren't either. But the call here, the call here is to go all in. To go all in, not because we want Jesus to love us, but because he has, because he does. To go all in for him because he's already gone all the way in for us. So this is not like, hey, if I do this, then maybe Jesus will reciprocate. He's like, look, I'm, all, I'm here. I'm here with you. Come meet me in the space. Don't hold anything back, right? Like I said, I realize none of us is, going to, is doing this perfectly. We're not going to do it perfectly. I know that there are places in my life, moments in my day, moments in my week where I'm going to mess this up, where instead of sending it, like I'm going to biff it, I'm going to crash, I'm going to burn. But here's what else I know. I know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I know that the gold medal has already been declared. And I know that my place on the podium is secure. Yours is too, by the way. And it's it's this fact that liberates me to get back up and dust myself off and to try again, right? To climb up on that half pipe and to give it all that I've got. I know that there are those who might say, look, John, if you're going to fail, why, why even bother? But the only kind of people who talk like that are cowards, The the people who never ride a bike because they're afraid they might fall off. There are people who will never play an instrument because they're afraid of striking the wrong note. There are people who never dance because they're afraid of a misstep. There are people who never snowboard or ski because they are afraid they might slip and fall. I don't want to live like that. And Jesus doesn't want me to live like that. And he doesn't want you to live like that either. Jesus lives and dies for us. He goes all in for us. So that with a gold medal hanging around our necks, we can go all in for him too. At this point, sort of in the ride, at this point in the finals, on this side of the gospel, we're not motivated by fear anymore. We're not motivated by anxiety. Now, like Sean White on his last lap, we can send it because it's fun. It's fun to send it. We can send it because it's beautiful to fly high. 
We can send it because we know how much sending it pleases our coach and creator who is already pleased with us. When we look over our shoulder and we see him there at the top of the half pipe, he is smiling at us. He delights in us as, we, as he watches us go for it. Not, again, not to get gold. We have it already. Jesus has set you free to live this kind of beautiful, integrated, wholehearted, and holy life. A life that's not just good for you and good for the world, but a life that is beautiful. A life that soars. He is all in for you. So friends, be all in for him too.